Hey everybody, welcome to another episode of Adela Marcy Unplugged. I'm your host of the most, as always, Adela Marcy. And please pardon the background noise. Uh, my little cat, Luna, the other one that you guys haven't met that's usually quite quiet, is uh, playing with a nail file, and I can't get it off of her. She's just sat there playing around with it, so I'm like, let her have her fun time. I have that while she meows in my face. So today is kind of an awesome show for me because uh, the person that we're actually getting back onto the show is one of our previous uh, people that basically almost, I think we, I think you closed out 2019 as one of the last shows that I like, let loose. And that is our very good friend, Kat McLeod. Now, Kat is a entrepreneur. She has had several businesses that she's spanned in different areas. Last time we didn't get a chance to go into all those areas. Today, we're going to be going more in depth with everything, including the stuff that she basically picked up from her time in the... Actually, what industry would you say? Would you say it's the adult or the sex industry? Or what would you say? It's both. I mean, it was specialized in fetish, but it's all under fetish the adult industry. industry. Yeah. So mm-hmm. fetish industry is where we're going to go with. So I was trying, trying to remember what the actual term was, and my brain was, I cannot remember what it is. Um, Kat, thank you for being here and coming back on. I really appreciate you uh, coming back on so I can actually speak to you because I loved having a chat with you last time. It's great fun chatting with you, Adol. I'm so glad. I still hold the title of smoothest voice of podcasts, so I'm going to keep that. You know what? I might make up an award for myself and just post it somewhere. Just like voted most smoothest voice by his guests. To be fair, if I got all of my guests to like vote on this, and that's like 230 people. If I got like a hundred votes saying you have the smoothest voice of podcasting, I'm like, it's official. It's an award. You only need 10 for the Oscars and I have a hundred for my voice. You got it. Put it on there. I'll, I'll definitely vote for you. Oh God. I, I think my friend Travis Houston has, in my, in my opinion, he has a smoother voice, but he and I were talking about this and he goes, no, I think your voice is better. I was like, no, I think your voice is better. And <laughs> we had a whole argument about this. Um, but of course in jest. And of course, uh, just a quick shout out to our sponsors for the show. If you guys head on over to S-A-H-E, oh, sorry, S-A-H-M entrepreneurs.com. So S-A-H-M entrepreneur.com. I always butcher that. It's really annoying. I was like, I got this. I'm fine. I miss a fucking letter. Brilliant. Uh, and of course, we're sponsored by storysellingblueprint.com. If you head on over to S-A-H-M entrepreneur.com, you can get a free business training with Kat, where she basically covers the three biggest mistakes stay-at-home moms make. I know if some guys might be listening, well, what about me? Trust me, it applies to you too. If you're a stay-at-home dad, this probably still applies to you in the exact same way. It's business. It's universal principles. Don't be weird about it. Just go check it out. If it's, if it resonates with you, go with it. Um, also, if you go check out storysellingblueprint.com, you'll be able to get my, three, uh, my three-step train to finding your story maximizing your story's actual potential and ultimately creating unlimited content from this process I'm going to give you. So head on over to storiesellandblueprint.com and of course, sahmentrepreneur.com. Nailed it that time. Thank you very much. Now, kind of jumping off that point of what we discovered last time, because I'm not going to rehash everyone on like, oh, what you do, how you do it, because we we spoke about that. I kind of want to jump right into how the hell did you get into the fetish business? Because that's something that we didn't really get to discuss last time. I was a dominatrix. I answered an ad to be a dominatrix after I moved to Los Angeles and all the strip clubs were uh, lap dancing. And I didn't want to lap dance because my father was abusive and I didn't want to be grinding on strangers. It just had no appeal to me. So I just happened to see an ad in a newspaper because back then everything was in actual newspapers. I know, and right? it said something about... Uh, become a dominatrix, you know, no sex, no massage, blah, blah. It sounded fun. So I answered it and it was fun. I got trained into being a dominatrix. I enjoyed it for about six to nine months. I mean, of course I got trained underneath someone. Got, I was like, why am I giving half my money to her and went off on my own? That's the problem with having the agency model like that in the sex industry and went off on my own didn't enjoy it after about six to nine months. It's actually mentally grueling and physically grueling. And it just wasn't my thing. So I niched down to basically foot fetish because it was the most relaxing. I found it the most enjoyable. The clients were low key, but it was only 5% of my dominatrix business. So I thought I would have to get a full-time job. And instead my business blew up and I was making multiple six figures at the age of 22 to the age of 27. That's incredible. Okay, so there is a lesson here to be told that very few people really understand. 
And I'm going to preface this very quickly. One of my favorite things to learn, uh, one of my favorite industries to learn from is the sex industry. Because they have, they are probably the best salespeople you will ever find. Like former, like cam girls, um, strippers, they know how to sell. And one of my favorite people uh, was the Triple X uh, sales technique book by by the Mayflower Madam. I don't know if you know who she is. Sydney, I can't, I'm going to find her name. Um, sales, uh, sales strategy. She did a book with Dan Kennedy. And she basically explained how in New York, she would, uh, how she went from escorting herself, I think it was, uh, I believe, to being a madam for one of the most exclusive escorting services in New York, where she would only serve Wall Street. And she was like, well, they were making money hand over fist. It was incredible. And of course, yes, I did use that term, hand over fist, very, very liberally for the sense <laughs> of how it is. Uh, it was by Sydney Biddle Barrows uh, and Dan Kennedy. It's called Uncensored Sales Strategies, a Radical New Approach to Selling Your Customers What They Really Want No Matter What Business You're In. Basically, it just downloads a lot of what Sydney went through um, in her business and how she basically used those same sales strategies because at the end of the day, she might be the madam, but she's not the one that's selling um, the service. She's not the one that's, uh, that's doing it. She's just providing a means to get there. So Sydney did it really perfectly. She trained all her girls up and they were killing it. Like this place was, I think they were doing like, if I'm not mistaken, seven figures a year as an escorting service. It's incredible. Um, so I thought that was pretty cool and they had different variances. So I love learning from that industry. So one of my questions I'm going to ask you is what did you pick up from that about client attraction that actually still serves you today? It was just niching down to exactly what I was focused in and not being afraid to. So a lot of mistakes that I see a lot of newer businesses and businesses that are folding do is they want to attract everyone. And even the example you just brought up, she targeted Wall Street only. So those Wall Street people knew, oh, this is for me. And not only that, they not only had the, they had the willingness and extreme ability to pay. So her, she went to a population that could pay her that had the willingness, the desire. So at the age of 22, I did that. I didn't understand it was online marketing. I didn't even know it was called marketing. I just did it at the time and it worked. So to this day, I still use that kind of attraction model for what I actually focus in. That's incredible. So basically what you've done is very heavily niched right down to how you can serve the single soul focus of a client. So if I get this correct, it's kind of, it's, it's that intersectional place between they have the money to afford me. I provide a service that they want. And it's one that basically I don't have a lot of competition, essentially what it is. Or even if you have a ton of competition, you've niched down enough that you can stand out. In the foot fetish field, looking back, I think there is a lot of competition, but it doesn't matter. There's enough people for that industry so that when you niche down and you own, the difference was I only niche to that. Whereas I think a lot of people at that time, 20 years ago, was doing that as part of that overlying BDSM community. Yeah. And people who want nothing to do with BDSM have zero desire to go to a dominatrix slash dungeons type setting to indulge a gentler fetish like foot fetish. It doesn't feel as safe. It doesn't feel, it didn't feel good for them. They didn't want all the other stuff. And it was harder at that time to just get something as simple as foot fetish. That is actually quite interesting. So in today's world, if you were giving the advice to a business owner today, let's pick some, I'm going to pick one of my, I'm going to pick my industry because I'd be curious to see how you do this because I know exactly where I focus on. So for me, my focus is businesses that are, as, as well as I've worked with businesses, like one of the lead attractions I have is I take on companies that are doing over a million dollars a year and I help them scale. That's one of the businesses because that's copy. The place that I teach my product service to um, where basically we productize my knowledge that is for entrepreneur for people who are doing less than six figures and want to really get past that six figure point and actually uh, use their story to do so. I don't have my story. I don't know how to use my story. I don't know how to get six figures. That'll help me. That's basically where I come in. So if you were to go ahead and advise, uh, advise a copywriter of today's world to really niche down, because let's be honest, copywriters today are a dime a dozen and you don't really know who's good, who's bad. 
and let's say the charge is $15,000. That's 15 grand is their base rate of how much they charge. What niche and how would they find their niche that they could actually go into? Like I would first start asking you who have been the clients that you worked with that you most enjoyed, who have been the non-pain in the ass clients for you. And also I would, I understand that you want to bring people to that multiple six figure level because there is a big jump from hitting your first six figures to the multiple six figures. And for a $15,000 charge, they have to be able to have been, have, they've had to have had success on their own in order to afford that and be comfortable investing in that. Yeah. I would agree with that. I actually was going to say, I'm trying to move away just for myself here. So I was just giving you like a whole different oh. person. Yeah, because yeah. for me, I let's I, let's, I, let's pretend this. You you give me John. the hypothetical. Okay, John. So for John, I would question his. I understand that he wants to move to that multiple six figure, and that is worth investing fifteen thousand dollars in. I would first ask John who have been the clients that he's most enjoyed working with, because you don't want to work with pain in the ass clients in order just to scale your business, because that's just going to lead to burnout and then zero income when you close down shop. I'm, (laughs) I'm an example of wanting to close down shop and closing down shop of that fetish business. So that that would be the first question I would ask for them. And then I would be with that $15,000 high end point, then you definitely want clients who are on the higher end nearing that six figures or at that. I would have them probably target a six figure business owner who is ready to scale to the multiple six because there is a big jump between the two. Oh yeah, massively. That's something I've personally learned my own in my own like life and my business. Like getting to a hundred thousand uh, pounds, not dollars, but getting to a hundred thousand pounds was one of the craziest and bizarre things I've ever done. Like I got there, I was like, "Wow, this is incredible!" But then you realize the whole new set of challenges that come with it. And funnily enough, something you just said right now that if you don't uh, work with the people you want to work with, you will hit burnout very, very quickly. And I've actually found that um, one of the examples I've given, I'm sure like some of the people I've worked with by the time the show comes out, because I probably won't be working with them by the time the show comes out. Um, not that they're a pain in the ass. It was just a lot of work. Like it was, a, it, a, there's two ways of pain in the ass for me. There's a lot of work and not enough of an upside for me. And there's, um, they're just a terrible client that really just drains all your energy out of you. Unfortunately, this is one of those clients that basically end up being a lot of work for me. And I was like, I really don't feel like spending as much of my creative energy with you every single day. Now, one of the key things I actually found as a differentiator, and I'm going to step away from the microphone in about two minutes because something has happened I need to go take care of. (laughs) But in that same sense, I'm going to ask you this very simple question. I just really want you to um, kind of explain this. So like if we were going to client attraction, because there is this whole aspect of that you can target a six-figure business what would you say in order to actually get them onto the phone with you? Because this is something I found a lot of people have a problem doing is getting people on the phone or would you just try and close them via a Facebook messenger chat or would you rather get them on the phone? I would totally get them on the phone. I think marketing is moving into personal connection and people, that old method of doing it through funnels and trainings and email, it just isn't as effective nowadays. People know that there's nobody on the other end and they're really craving connection. So when you get your that potential client on the telephone, it just, it it speeds up the process of the no like, and trust to a huge degree. That being said, I have had clients that we do a lot of our chit chatting. Like I filled a group program. I filled my first group program basically via messenger. However, these people were a warm audience to me that had been following me for a while, had been seeing my training. So they weren't cold to me. If you need to bridge that gap and it's not as warm in an audience, definitely getting them on the phone by hitting their pain points, using an, an amazing copywriter like adult to really, really hone in on their pain points and then get them on the phone, especially okay. for those higher end packages. I would also jump in and say that I would actually get you focused on the pleasurable side of their business as well as in why they do what they do and how they basically show up. Because the thing is, it's all good and well actually just pointing out the pains, but if you're a copywriter that can't solve those pains, you want to, and that's what I mean, I always like to direct both pain and pleasure just simply because you end up, it gives you a chance to kind of like, not backtrack and get out of it, but it gives you enough of a chat, uh, enough of an opportunity 
that if things um if you build up too much pain that's my boy cat everyone chases back as you guys know <laughs> you will always meow at most inappro inappropriate uh opportune moments gotta love him but one of those things is um one of those things is like if you basically just focus entirely on the pain and you build up the pain profile so much you could actually set them into paralysis and that's what you don't want to do which is why i find that if you strike a balance between pain and pleasure you will actually get a combination play of the two but you do have to speak to that pain also you can't see this right now at home and uh, unfortunately neither can cat but uh, my my boy cat Chase basically walked up right behind my laptop and just started fussing his head on the side of my laptop. Call <laughs> uh, of uh, them. Adel, that's a great point. I just did a training this morning, as a matter of fact, in my group program, speaking about the same thing. I led them through pleasure and pain. So I started with the pain and then you end with the pleasure because your people have to see where you're going to take them. They want their end result and they take notice from the pain and then we lead them to their pleasure. So totally seconding what you were saying. Oh, without a doubt. It's something, again, this is something I actually learned from the adult industry. Um, Cause years ago, absolutely years ago, there was a company that basically launched something called two girls teach sex.com. And basically what they would do, they would, rec they would recruit porn stars to uh, teach men how to have sex, how to have better sex. And this is like 2009, 2010. Mm. So a, a while ago. Around that time, uh, being a young copywriter myself, obviously I studied everything that came up my way. And that was something I learned from them. I didn't get the course, obviously, but what I did do was I read all their copy. Because it all came up and it was in the one of the industries I was working in and was very related to it. So I thought I'd check it out. And one of the key things I found was how they would drive up the pain, but then ultimately give you the pleasure. So the pain was you might not be very good at satisfying women and you might not actually get a bunch of people calling you back. That was their hook was basically become essentially I'm using the term very loosely, but become a sex god in the sense of that basically women want to come back to you and keep sleeping with you. Um, and the pain was that's not happening for you right now. So the pleasure was we're going to teach you how to do that and actually receive that and the way that we're going to do it. And this is the very clever part of the marketing is because it was adult film stars that were teaching it. Natural, our inclination is if you're a professional being paid to do something, you're better than me who's an amateur. But the truth is sometimes not, that's not the case. Sometimes you might be actually better but the psychological play that we have is that if you're being paid for something, the perceived rea reality is the other person that you're paying is better than you at what you're paying them to do or to teach you. So that's the key thing. And the other thing I'd actually jump off that and please tell me what your opinion on this is. But it's the idea of being an expert and not being an expert. And I'm curious about what your theory is. Can you start a business where you're not an expert or would you, how would you do it? Cause that's the big thing we've seen so far is everyone has to be an expert. I don't advise in it. I really like to start my current clients on a skill or a gift or a passion that they really have. And then to ground in their expertise, because it just doesn't feel like an integrity with me. Now, if it is something that maybe because of mindset stuff, they don't want to ground in their expertise. And I find this all the time. This is the majority of clients feel like even if they have the expertise that they have a hard time owning it, that's a different thing. I find it, I find it hard to subscribe to the fake it till you make, make it. it. Yep. <laughs> yeah. Like and that. really, well, only because the industry is so almost like all of the online industries will say they're so populated and saturated right now. If you're faking it, people are going to find out. And then it just leads to disappointment. For instance, one of my colleagues just shared with me on Sunday that a previous program that they paid $15,000 for, interestingly enough, since that's the price point you brought up, he never spoke to the person leading the program until he already paid the money. I guess he spoke to a closer. As soon as he got on the phone with the person, he knew it was going to be a terrible waste of his money from that moment on because that person was just a great marketer and clearly didn't have expertise in what he needed expertise in. So he was just a great closer. I mean, that just leads to terrible feelings and him sharing with others that this person is not going to truly help you. So I do believe standing strong in your expertise. It doesn't mean that you can't learn little skills and 
you know, keep growing. Of course, we're all evolving, but don't start a business where you don't have the expertise. It just isn't right. Personally, I agree with you entirely. I have an entire philosophy around this. And I actually, uh, by the time this comes out, I created a course around this on like, it's a three-step. It's, it's basically what I called the basic funnel. And the basic funnel is uh, essentially three pages. Uh, it's an opt-in page. It's a sales letter. It's a deliverable page. But the thing is, and something I really shout through in that as a bonus, but also in the course, and also I do my own life, is if you're not an expert in something, you can be an affiliate for something and still build a business. You can still pay an expert to actually become the face of your company. So the way you can do it is you can hire a ghostwriter to write your book for you. But the thing is, you have to actually tell the people, I'm not the expert, by the way, guys. You know, I hired someone to work with me to bring this forward. It was like I worked with my mentor to basically help me create this program. Um, so it's their, you don't even have to say it's their work per se, but you can't, but I would personally myself, I'd say it was their work um, that I'm actually putting out there because it means that it's integrity, it's in alignment. And by the way, if I completely fuck up, my, as far as it's as stupid as it sounds, but it lowers the risk of being a fuck up that gets into so much more trouble than they should. Because half the time, like, if you say that you're an expert in something, you're not, you screw up, then you have all these feelings of refunds and denial and blah, blah, and everything else. Whereas if you actually do it this way, it's so much easier to just streamline everything and just kind of mitigate the, the cost of damages. Like, the damage that you may have is minimized. Yeah, you'll have to refund, fair enough. But you personally won't feel terrible. Like, you won't feel like, I'm worthless because the thing I've done is terrible which is quite powerful in its own right for its mindset. Now, something I did want to ask in relation to this question is, do you believe nearly anyone could become a, a, become a knowledgeable expert in anything? Or do you think there's just like specific that they have like a natural, uh, they have a natural um, affluence with something? I wouldn't think that you could be an expert in anything. You can improve in anything. I'll give myself as an example. I will not speak about technology. I could strain and learn it and probably become adequate, but should I have in any way, shape, or form be teaching somebody how to do technology stuff? No. So even though I could become adequate, is it's not an expertise. If you're starting out a business, really figure out what your strengths are and what your what you can really bring to the table. Cause if you're constantly trying to learn something new and then show up as an expert, it's not going to feel right for you. It's going to be really, really energy consuming. And you're just not going to be that great at it. I've seen people doing this. It makes me shake my head and I can't imagine that they're attracting yeah. a lot of clients to them. Well, shake your head amongst other things really. And just get really mad at them. For me, it's a middle finger, but you know, that's just me. <laughs> I do. Oh, no, go on. You're gonna say. And and I, I might get some hate for this. I do question in my specific field in business coaching. I see people coming online claiming to be business coaches, but they've never owned a business outside of being a business coach. And I believe that behind the tables, like or behind the screen, they really need you in order to have enough income. They, if you're just starting out and you've not run a successful business or an online business or grown some business to a certain degree and then you're trying to do be business coaching it just doesn't it doesn't strike me as a good thing to have like for instance i know somebody who is touting business coaching and being successful in your business and making six figures in your business and i know behind the scenes that she still has her corporate gig that she hates yet online she's touting that she's going to help you with your business and she's never she's not run a successful one of her own see i have there's a crossroads with that because i stand on both sides i do believe that you do need to have some understanding of business in order to be a business coach so if your first business is i'm a business coach shut the fuck up get out of here no one cares that's what i'm talking about i'm, I'm on that side all day long the reason i'm on the other side as well is you might have run a business and it was a failure in fact you might have had 10 huge failing businesses and what you've decided to do is journal all the reasons why they failed figure out what really went on and then you're like i don't have the money to start another business i don't have the drive to and then your friend shows up and goes hey i've got a business and your whole thing is i can help you with that you help them you get them results now you can actually say you're a business coach because you've already got success with someone else 
in well, Adel, you already owned a business. You already exactly. owned multiple businesses that failed. Yeah. You still owned businesses. Exactly. At that point, in my opinion, you're allowed to. If you come from, like, I'm working a corporate gig, and that corporate gig is in sales. Let's just say you're in corporate sales, high-level sales. Fair enough. You have some level of understanding of businesses, but you cannot be a business coach. In my opinion, you can be a sales coach. Cannot be a business coach. Because that means you don't understand the other side of operations. You don't understand the fact that you need to actually make sure that like your C-suite needs to be properly taken care of. You don't understand what it's like to pay the, the right amount of taxes on the higher end. And most importantly, you sure as shit don't know about like how to bring leads in. You know how to close them, but you might not know as much about like ad budgets. You might be like, oh, I got a leads list at my old job, and that's basically how we close them. Okay, so you got everything given to you. You didn't have to go out there and do the other stuff. Now, the reason I say the uh, why I was on the other side of the fence, so this is the third level, so to say, is I do believe that anyone can be an expert in anything they do. And the reason I say that is an expert from the old definition, isn't it? A different definition of it is someone, uh, the old way they used to do it was like you find five books on a subject and you basically master it. Now, here's the caveat, and you said it best. Something that is organic and as fast growing as something as technology and social media. I don't think you'll be an expert. Personally, I don't. Whereas if it's something old school like sales, psychology, understanding how people think, even business. By the way, business principles have been around from the dawn time. doesn't really matter. Those things you can be an expert in. But when it comes down to I'm a tech expert, I'm sorry, you're a tech enthusiast with a high level of interest. That's what you are. You can be, because if you are an expert level, I mean, do you think Mark Zuckerberg considers, considers himself a social media expert? He's a business expert. He knows how to build a tech company. Exactly. But do you think he's a social media expert? The man owns a social media business, so he should be a social media expert, correct? By, by society standards is what they say. I don't believe that because like the guy who started Zappos, he doesn't even care about shoes. He started a, a fantastic company that was the whole premise was on customer service. So I don't believe that Mark Zuckerberg, and of course I'm just guessing, is that he believes he's a social media expert. I would be right there with you because I've never heard him once say it. In fact, it, same with Steve Jobs. I've never heard Steve Jobs when he was alive, Mayor Russell, actually say that he was a tech expert. In fact, if anything, he is a business expert who has uh, who focuses again on customer service and user experience. His field of expertise was how do I make this thing so likable and lovable that it works? Because if he was just a tech expert, he would if when he was ousted from Apple, he would have gone and worked for another tech company. Instead, he went into the movie business and founded uh, Pixar. Yeah, he definitely has the vision. Like he, when he got rehired by Apple after the Pixar, from what I remember, he had to take away a bunch of products that had come up while he was not away, there. Yeah. And he had to really streamline it. So he knew how to do a very select amount, like again, a niche, niche. Yeah. <laughs> a select amount of products and do them so excellently and beautifully and simply. He, I actually heard a story about him. He had done a college course when he, I think, dropped out of college at that point, And he dropped into some kind of design course. It and was that, uh, calligraphy. Oh, yeah. Thank you. And that 10 years later down the line, he used that aesthetic appeal into the Apple store. And we all know how that turned out. Yeah, massively. Uh, <laughs> one, of the cool thing that, one of the cool things I do love about his story in this case is um, he actually went into calligraphy. He, he was in calligraphy by accident. He went to calligraphy completely by accident, fell in love with the way that it looked, and said, why can't I do that on a computer? Oh, that's right. That's why we have all the different fonts and the 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 beauty that we have in on our computer. Otherwise, it would just be super generic. Entirely. And something the thing is, like, I just as a side note, because I'm an Apple fanboy right now. I have an iPad. I have an iPhone. I have my MacBook. I have my iMac upstairs. The only thing I don't have is the watch, and I don't want the watch because for me, watches are always, uh, for me, watches are pretty much timeless timepieces like this. So I don't want to upgrade this. I want to keep this so I can pass this down my family line. It's like one of those things where I'm like, that shouldn't be tech integrated for me. I, I see why people like it, but it's not my thing. But 
What I will say that I absolutely love is the fact that I used to be an Apple hater. Not a fan. Oh. I used to totally be the exact opposite. Up until 2008, I was like, I'll never get an Apple computer. It's super <laughs> expensive. I don't know why I'll ever use one. In fact, for the same price of an Apple, I can get three Windows laptops. Just a whole lot, right? And then um, I ended up getting my first MacBook completely by accident because a friend of mine was like, look, you just got... Because for me, I was uh, I was a late... It was in my late teens. I think I was like 19 uh, or 20. And I decided at that point that I was going to get a MacBook, um, like a 2006 throwback, so like a refurbished MacBook. And I was like, I'll get this because it's a status symbol. But I didn't think it was a status symbol. I wanted to just see what the big hype was. But looking back at it, obviously, it was a status symbol in my head because like everyone else I worked with had Macs. And I'm there with my PC. I'm like, this doesn't work. <laughs> so obviously, I got one. Um and I'll say this much, within two weeks of having that, I could not use a Windows laptop ever again. I just can't, I, not just because it's like, oh, I never could because, no, I physically cannot. It's like so hard to go back to that keyboard. That keyboard is in terror, is, it, don't get me wrong, the new Apple keyboards piss me off. The one that I have right now, which is the 2016 version of the Apple MacBook, uh, the MacBook Pro, because I got this back then, fucking love it. It's the, it's the right amount of everything for me. It's like, you have everything I need. The only thing they don't have right now, um, I don't know if you saw the new update that Apple's released for the new software, but you can actually turn your iPad into a second monitor for your for your MacBook. It's amazing. It's called Sidecar. Though there is pro there, there's rumor that unless you have the latest version of a MacBook, it won't work, but we're going to test that out later and see what happens. But kind of jumping back into it and kind of like your whole history of how you actually pull out those lessons from that, from the world of being, you know, in the fetish world, to where you are today, what would you say was some of the, um, actually, no, let's change that around. I want to ask you a personal question. This: What was the most fun experience you had when you were doing that? Like, what was like an amazing experience that just calls out to you? Like, I remember that. I, I, there's not like one of those things that stick out in my head. There's a few interesting Ooh, stories. So one of my, okay. So I strictly saw men. There was only a couple of exceptions. I did not take on women. However, I did have a couple that I would visit them at the Beverly Hills hotel. They paid me mega bank. That's why I was willing to do that. Otherwise it was in call. Cause I found it safer. I had a bodyguard that would be in a room that was my personal assistant. And this was one of those situations where I would visit this couple semi-regularly on an, at their bungalow. And it was so, I mean, looking back, it's just hilarious. We, <laughs> they basically were like testing a threesome without any kind of crossing line and having sex at all. So the wife and I would just like scrub our feet in the bathtub and go on the bed. And then the husband would watch while the wife and I just massaged each other's feet. I never touch people's feet. I have no fetish into feet. I'm not into it at all, but for thousands of dollars, I was into it. And it was like this lovely couple. And you could just tell the, that it was just so excited. And from my viewpoint, it was just so, it was just like the most innocent way you could possibly have a threesome. And they were just so into it. And on the way back, I would just, <laughs> I would just laugh because you could tell they were just so excited and they were a lovely, they were a lovely couple, couple in the and, way they were. But it's also kind of funny because it's like, that is the, <laughs> that is the safest way to test out exactly. if you're okay with it. Yeah, I don't even think that there was nudity involved. Like thinking back, I don't, be I believe I was in like a cute summer dress the whole time with just feet on the bed, like definitely didn't cross the line. And they would, I, I can't remember exactly, but I would say like every six months or so, I don't believe they were from, well, I actually never asked them for all I know, they rented a bungalow in the Beverly Hills hotel so that I didn't know where they lived, which would also make sense, you know, a little getaway. And you could tell that they were going to have a fun time after I left. But that was one of the stories that rang out in my head because that was unusual for me. Another one of my favorite clients that I had for five years, he sticks out in my head because his wife always sent him to me with really fun presents that she thought of herself, like her favorite new makeup or like a really interesting bouquet of exotic flowers. So that's why he stuck out. Yeah. His wife was totally down with it. She was super cool. Again, I didn't have sex with my clients. So it was 
fairly innocent. It was like a fairly innocent way. And she was in on it. And I was always excited because he would, he would send little goodies for me from his wife and they were good goodies. I enjoyed them. So that's how he sticks out in my head. Yeah. Those are just a couple of the fun stories. There wasn't like this amazing story of, I mean, there were clients I thought were hot. I mean, that's something that sticks out (laughs) here and there. That's a question that rarely gets brought up. And I'm curious because I've get, again, I work in the service industry. And of course, you know, after a while without whistleblowing on some stuff, let's just say that there are times that I've heard stories of people like client and service provider ending up getting together. In fact, I know several people that got married this way. That's how they met. So my curiosity is, what's your, do you have a rule on that? Like not not just from back then, but like today, do you have like a rule on that as in like, oh, you know, service, pro- I know you're married today, so obviously that doesn't matter. <laughs> I mean, in the sense of like, if you saw someone else doing that today, do you have like a whole thing that's like, you shouldn't cross company lines like that? Or you're just like, people are people, let them be people. I mean, people are people as long as there isn't a huge power dynamic, like inside a corporation. I understand why they have those rules just to yeah. protect people from feeling that, but we're not talking about that. As far as service industry, I also know someone, I know, uh, I know somebody who hired an escort. I actually don't know the escort herself. This was so many years ago and he started dating her and she had major issues because she had once been in the porn industry and she was suffering from depression and all of that stuff. So it does happen. I mean, people are people there. I mean, in five years, I would say that there was a handful, like seriously, a handful of clients I thought were hot <laughs> that I had any attraction to at all. Well, yeah, of course. I mean, I'm assuming you kind of go into a mental state where you're kind of like, okay, I'm I, I'm here to do my work and that's it. But then every so often you, you get treated with someone you're like, okay, I did not expect this and you're hot. And one of the things yeah, that, oh, sorry. I don't know you're saying. I mean, that's true because the, I wasn't into foot fetish. Like that just needs, you know, that wasn't my thing. If it was more my thing, genuinely more my thing, then I could totally see how that could go further. But it wasn't my thing. It was purely work for me. Yeah. So that's actually quite an interesting way of seeing it. Now, cur- again, that was just a complete offshoot. No so worries. I was very curious about that because I was like, oh, I wonder what happens when this happens. The only reason I bring that up as well is because, like, again, I've had it before where um, I've had I've had listeners of the show, which is quite interesting, actually reach out to me and just say, hey, um, you know, like, do you want to get together and stuff? And it's been really interesting. <laughs> it's the damn smooth voice. That's what I'm going to say. It's the damn smooth voice. Um, well, we can talk about that at another point. But kind of like getting back to uh, the idea of the show. Uh, which is always to goss and have fun. Um, one of my favorite things I really wanted to ask you about, especially with stay-at-home mom entrepreneurs.com, like entrepreneur.com, what's the, like, would you say there's like a stay-at-home dad entrepreneur market that can actually be exploited in this as well? And when I say exploited, I mean like that isn't being served. I do think that I was just listening to a podcast yesterday about how stay-at-home dads get so much slack how they're not supported in our society and that so many dads who would be the better nurturer wind up going into the job force, not and they're not really the killers and their wives are the stay at home moms because they want somebody at home and the wives are really unhappy because they're, they're really killers, but they're in their stay at home mom life, which is a totally different life. It is challenging for a really, a high achiever to be in a stay-at-home mom life and feel really fulfilling. I mean, there are some of them. I'm not, I'm just speaking in general things. So there is a market for stay-at-home dads. There's probably going to be an increasing amount of stay-at-home dads as the stigma becomes less and less and women uh, take their place in higher corporate levels or entrepreneurship. More and more women are going to entrepreneurship and there will be that same need where dads are at home. They love raising their kids, yet they still have skills they miss being more than dad. It's the same kind of thing. I don't cater to that market right now, but the 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 self-study course that I'm in the works of doing would cater to that market just the same as a mom. I mean, we all were our individual self before we gate became parents. Oh, without a doubt. And the reason I ask that is because there's some smarty pants out there that's going to be like, huh, I wonder if I can do this with dads. You can. You now have the green light. It's actually there as a market. And I agree with that because... 
um, I actually have a very close friend of mine. Um, she is like we met ten years ago, both doing door to door sales. Like that's how we met. We've been friends ever since. She's like one of my best friends. Like it's really weird. We didn't speak to each other for about four years. Not because we didn't want to. We just got on with our lives as we did. Um, and she, when we got back in touch earlier this year, her exact words were to me were. Yeah, by the way, here's the funny thing. Um, here's the funny thing about adults it's actually brilliant. She goes, me and you, literally, we, we can not talk. And she goes, I still know I can show up at your house in London and I'll have a place to sleep. She goes, I can knock at your door at midnight and I'll just call you. It's like, hey, are you home? I'm like, yeah. She goes, what's your address? Why I'm coming over? Done. She's like, I know that's the level of trust I have with you. I'm like, that's pretty awesome. So that's... Um, that's something that's actually quite powerful for me in, that, in the way that those relationships are formed. But the reason I bring that up is because she is a sales killer, but for a while she was a stay-at-home mom. And she's already told me, she's like, nope, nope, I don't like doing that. I have to go back to do my work because I don't like doing that. And I find that, um, kind of to touch upon your point on this, men do get a lot of flack for being the stay-at-home dad. I mean, don't get me wrong, my whole like idea of what I want to do is... I just want to do this. I want to do my podcasts. I want to like sell my products. I want to work with like two or three clients. That's about it. Nothing more. But the ultimate goal is that I'm going to spend when I have children, I'm probably going to spend about four days not work or four days not working and three days just doing everything I need to do. And you know, if my partner wants to go out and she wants to go like build her career, do whatever, I'm like yeah, babe, go do that. You you handle that. I'm going to spend time with this these these group of little assholes that are like related to me like that. <laughs> Yeah, I've already, I've already briefed, um, I think it's like in a briefing packet that I actually, when I start dating someone, like, you know, I'll get to know each other. I, once I've hit that point of where I'm 30, I just think I kind of come with a dossier. It's like, here's, here's my values. Here's the things you should know about me. Here's the warning label you need to have about me. And here's what I'm going to do with our children, if we have any. Um, so like one of the warning labels I have, uh, which is actually a truism so anyone listening to the show this is actually true and yes i've had this since i was 12 this is how long i've had this warning label which is if you hit me in the nether regions i will chase you down because i don't quit i don't care how fat and out of shape i am i just will not quit i will literally get to you i will wrestle you to the ground and i will fart in your mouth and they're like why i'm like because when you hit me in the nuts i don't go down i just get really gaseous and the worst part is I have like I because I have uh, ulcerative I was diagnosed with ulcerative colitis so smelly ass farts. So you guys just know, don't hit me in the nuts. It's gonna be fine. Oh my gosh, Adel, you are hilarious. This is why you have listeners writing you because they really feel like they know you. You have your smooth voice, and not only that, you just build that trust with sharing stories like this. But the thing is, that's actually a true thing. I actually have done this. Oh. The worst part was yeah. I did it when I was in the gym. When I used to like train Thai boxing. One of the, cause you gotta realize I was about 14 when this first happened and like it happened a couple of times. And then I just realized, you know what? Fuck it. This is the line. This is the line in the sand. I'm gonna draw this line at 12. Did it. I was 14 years old. Someone threw a glove at me from across the gym. Cause I was being a little obnoxious 14 year old dickhead. I will actually admit to that. And I kept making, they kept making me laugh. So as a 14 year old, when you're being chased around a gym by a grown ass person trying to beat your ass, it's kind of funny and hilarious, especially when you're taller than them at 14, it's even better. So as I turn around, I was like, haha, you can't get me. They literally were hopping on one leg and threw a glove as I turned around and hit me right in the nether region. So the first thing I did was I ran to them, took them to the ground because they only had one leg. I just double legged them. Just got straight into my house, like, what are you doing? I was like, I told you, if you do this, I'm going to fart in your face. And I just did. And they were like, you're gross and disgusting. I was like, you shouldn't do it. It's been, a, it's it's my nuclear deterrent. I'm glad it's on your forewarned dossier for dating you. Oh, yeah, for sure. The other one is basically like, if we have children, in to them, I'll call them little geniuses, my sunshine. I'll give them every beautiful name under the sun because I genuinely know that's how I will be as a dad. Uh, but behind, like, as soon as they're out of earshot, it's like, so let me tell you about dumbass one and two or shithead number one and two. It's like dumbass one pushed dumbass two down the stairs because he thought that was a good idea. Now dumbass two needs to get stitches, but dumbass one is crying because he feels terrible. 
I don't know if this has to be in your dossier because I'm going to guess a lot of parents talk like this behind closed doors. <laughs> oh, without a doubt. But like, you'd be surprised how many people that don't have kids are like, I would never do that. I'm like, bitch, I oh, know yeah. far too many parents that have done mm -hmm. this. Okay. I grew up in an ethic home. I know like all the cusses under the sun were told to me. <laughs> I've had all of those. So it's kind of like when people say, do, would you, if you had, actually, I want to ask you this because you are a mom. Um, so do you swear in front of your kids? That's my kid. I do. That's, I do. No when he was there. younger, I held it in a lot more. And now I let, I let him listen to Gary V. He understands that those are swear words. And if he says them at school, he might get in trouble. And in my eyes, they're just words and the intelligence and other stuff that he's missing out on for being able to think of the world differently and not just being a good student slash robot slash employee with nothing wrong with it. But that's just not only what I, I, I just don't want that for my son where I'm an entrepreneur. Yeah, exactly. So I allow him to listen to things with swear words. He definitely has heard me say them and he just has never repeated them he's turning seven soon and it's not because i told him not to it's just because i did tell him if you say these words at school you might get in big trouble and you might have to go to the principal's office and then mom and dad might have to be called but i don't even i think he just he just doesn't even seem to notice them yeah but I the answer is yes and then i want to just pony on what you were just saying before I had kids, I would have also been in any judgment of any parent who thought that they would say that behind their kids back. And oh, now wow. the reality of having kids. So any of you sitting in judgment, I'm going to guess you don't have kids or your entire identity is wrapped up into having kids. Cause I feel like anyone real behind closed doors would just be like, Oh my God, I cannot believe he did that. What a <laughs> you know what i find it really funny that people say that and do that because like my whole philosophy so i grew up in again i grew up in an ethnic background very you know as it is i kind of i grew up like okay swearing for me was different because i grew up in a bit of a turbulent home so swearing was kind of seen as a bad thing it wasn't seen as like an everyday thing mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. as you know and but what really changed my paradigm was when I was 16 I went home to Tanzania went back home to Africa to see my grandparents and my family there and it was funny because I was staying with my dad's side of the family and they weren't they didn't really they're like very protective around my little seven-year-old cousin at the time so she's like she's quite she's a little bit older now so she's 20 now which is crazy um and what's even scarier is when I went to my other cousin's house and stayed with them like with that aunt and those like oh my god my grandfather on that side of the family he was the one that was like it was like deaf comedy jam in the house like <laughs> cuss words were flying left right and center my grandma my granddad went at it at the dinner table and it was the funniest shit ever it was something like they, they were just basically saying stuff like it's i'm translating from my native tongue to english but it was kind of like he's di he was diabetic so he was like i want more food and she's like, if you eat more food, you'll die. And it goes, great, I can get away from you then. She goes, you say that now, but you'll miss me. <laughs> and just like shit like that. She goes, I'll make you wait until I get there and then I'll just annoy you. I'll annoy you when I see you on the other side. <laughs> I was like, and she like, I'm holding back all the cuss words that were said in this because there were a lot of cuss words. And I sat there going, there's a four-year-old and a three-year-old at the table. What the hell? And then I realized, just as I did with all my other cousins, as we've gotten older, they grew up around that. They are like up until seven, they're little tiny terrorists that like are just terrible. So their parents are like, whatever, just do whatever, you know, we'll, we'll be you, you be you, whatever it is. But once they hit past seven, I don't know what it is. They calm the fuck down. Like all of them calm down and the sweetest little kids ever that you could find. Like my cousins, like today, we have some of the best relationships ever. One of which um, we've jokingly said he and I are so similar. There's like four or five years between us. But the similarities are insane. Like, we both went to study the same thing at university. We both had the same interests in books. We both have the same personality type. We both have... We are so similar in our food habits. It's insane. Like, to the point that, my, like, his mom and my mom are gone. Seriously, how do we raise the exact same kid? The only difference is I have hair and he's a little bit bald. Sorry, Sal. <laughs> oh, Hair is nice, and I know that your eating habits are terrible, so that's unfortunate that you guys share that. How do you know my eating habits are terrible? I remember that from our last oh, interview together. They've gotten better. 
Okay, good, good. Because you were telling look- me how terrible they were. Exactly. I, <laughs> I still have my mating cold belly. That's still here. <laughs> I jokingly say that. I'm ripping on t- uh, Tracy Morgan. Uh, on my birthday, my friend and I went out to get coffee the next morning and we were down and we were getting she drinks coffee i don't we were down there and i was like oh i really need to work out more after like after last night i need to work out she goes great yeah because she goes yeah you're kind of developing a bit of a buddha belly there so for some reason just slapped my stomach and went the same buddha belly it's a mating call and she just burst out laughing i was like thank you tracy morgan this is yours <laughs> Oh, but it's it, it, it's one of those things that just is like I find that if you have humor with it, life is just a blast. And something that you've actually shared with us a lot today is as long as you're yourself, um, you'll literally have a lot more fun with everything that you do as long as you're yourself. Totally. If you're going to build a business or be in life, add in more pleasure. And if this is something I work at with my childhood abuse and everything. It's something that I actually focus on. And I've been focusing on it for a long time. And it still doesn't always come naturally to me. And if you're pushing and forcing and grabbing in life, I mean, that's just not a life unfolding in pleasure. The more you can do stuff where you feel good about it. And that's why I also don't believe in not having BS expertise, just rooting in what you feel good and adding in more of that into your life is going to really lead to more joy and more pleasure and a dream life agreed could not agree more it's definitely one of those things that you can actually look at unfortunately we are this hour's almost gone too quickly i know it's like it's always one of those things between us so again we got to get you back on again it's always brilliant <laughs> um but guys go check out uh what was it? S A T M Entrepreneur. No, no, no. S A H M Entrepreneur.com. S A H M. And by the time this podcast comes out, there will be a special training just on nailing your right business idea because this is the missing piece in most businesses that keep people stuck. So, nailing your right business idea. Awesome source. Guys, go check that out. Go, don't butcher it like I did. And hopefully by the time this uh, show comes out, there'll be an S-A-H-D entrepreneur.com. Somebody else can pony off of that. My green light all the way. Sweet stuff. All right, guys. Um, As always, Kat, it's been an absolute pleasure having you here. And I will always enjoy having you on the show. Guys, go check out uh, Kat's website, Optin. Make sure that you rate, review, subscribe, and share this episode. There's been some absolutely golden gems in here, but I also wanted the show to be quite fun. And, uh, you know, as is, and you guys will pick up some incredible ideas from here. And as always, it's been a pleasure. Kat, everyone, we'll see you next week.